This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Helen Mark, and thanks for downloading this episode of Radio 4's Open Country podcast, a series that brings you fascinating stories from every corner of the UK countryside. We hope you enjoy it. Come on, Aggie, this way. We're going for a more interesting walk. Good girl. Well, I'll join you on that walk oh, if it's all right. Yeah, of course it's okay. That, this is a special place for yourself, Steve Silver. You live close by? I do. I live just a couple of streets away. Um, we moved here permanently in 1979, bought a house. Uh, the first thing we did when we bought a house was bought a dog. <laughs> so I've walked around here since since that time. <laughs> right, OK, what should we do? What's her problem? Right, I think she wants to run around. Go on. <laughs> in 1999, everybody was talking about the millennium, obviously, and what was going to happen in the millennium and, you know, plant trees in the millennium and things like that. So I thought, oh, I'll plant some trees. So every time I brought the dogs out, um, I took a, a pocket full of acorns and just planted a few acorns. That's that's one of mine. That's one really? of mine. Yeah. It's obviously it's good growing it's land. Twenty miles. Well, there's all sorts buried under here. You see, we don't even know what's buried under here. There's a beautiful specimen yeah. of an oak tree, yeah. and I love it. Has these wide spreading branches which start from not that far up the trunk, yeah. and then you've got like the perfect picture book yeah. shape of of an oak tree. A, what height would you say that is now? It must be 25 feet, maybe. Yes. So that's put on <laughs> well over a foot every year. Yeah. Well, where did you get the acorns from? Uh, because I'm basically a scientist and my wife's a botanist. I didn't want to just go to an oak tree and get loads and loads of acorns. Um, I wanted some genetic diversity, so I collected them from around Charlton. Just had them in the and pockets I just, every time of I your came jacket? Out, I filled my pocket up. In fact, this is the jacket. So I just thought I'd put the same jacket on... <laughs> And uh, this is uh, this is the dipper that I used. <laughs> Pull out your pocket yeah. now. This is the little so garden yeah, dipper. <laughs> and you just yeah, just made the hole, made a hole, dropped, dropped an acorn in, put my foot on it, covered it up, and hoped for the best. And how many did you plant all together? All together, about three hundred. And how many came to fruition? Well, in the first year, about sixteen came up, which I thought was you know okay, but then in subsequent years, more kept coming up. I've been told that there's... I haven't counted them, but there's over 100 now. And some of them are still coming up, so they're still still small saplings. This is known as Rybank Fields, and it is an open space with rough scrublands, but it's got trees uh, around the perimeter and, and through the middle. It's about 11 acres in size. And it's in the Chorlton area um, in the southern part of the city of Manchester. It is owned by the Manchester Metropolitan University and they want to develop this land for housing. But it is also, in a way, I could almost say adopted by the local community who have a very strong connection with this place. And for this week's Open Country, I'm here because what is happening here is that those two sides have very different ideas of what this space should be to a community and to the city. And this is a scenario which is repeated 
in so many places across our landscape, in cities where there is a need for green space, but also a need for housing. I've come to the Longford Road entrance into Rybank Fields, and it's lovely to hear the birdsong, but of course there's that constant hum of the traffic all the time. It's just a reminder that I am in an urban environment. Oh gosh, there's a heron's just flown across oh our path. Yeah. And it's, I was just about to say, you know, standing here, it's a very basic, raw, muddy, yes. yeah. churned up yes. space. Yeah, it's not pretty, it's not a manicured park, but it's um it's wild, it's green. Yeah, it's raw, it's like nature raw basically. I'm standing here with Julie Ryan and Tara Parry and you are part of a campaign group to save what's called Rybank Fields. That's right. And uh, you live close by, you have personal connections with this space, so paint me a picture which is, if you don't mind me saying, slightly less drab than it is now when you walk in. I know it's the season that's in it, but... Um, there is a roughness and a sort of urban decayness about the yes. space. And the fact is, though, that a lot of the scrubland you see here, I mean, people do say it's wasteland and scrubland, but it's a hugely wonderful environment for wildlife. Um, they, all this here is blackberry bushes. It's a great place to forage. Um, and it's almost like a living food bank, the amount of... The, we've got wild raspberries, wild blackberries. You come in the summer and it's really alive. You'll hear the birds in the trees. You see, obviously, it's a, it's a different colour completely in the summer. There's parts of the fields we haven't seen yet. There's patches of woodland and at the the back there's the aspen grove which is well i always called it the magic forest when we come here with children they change they start to engage with you their behavior is different and we just don't have this kind of landscape around so much well this is a good opportunity to ask you tara when did you first hear about the development plans for this open space Probably at least two years ago, we were waiting for the the framework to come out. I think it came out in June, July 2019. What they did on the back of that was they increased um, the original plan for 70 executive homes to 120 mixed tenure homes. But there is a, um, a small percentage of affordable housing in there, which sounds better, doesn't it, on paper? But what it doesn't do for local people is it doesn't solve the actual problems, which are very much to do with traffic. And that brings me on to the problem of pollution. Um, the trees and the vegetation in this in the fields are they're a carbon sink. So grasses are really beneficial in absorbing carbon, plus all the trees, 1,400 trees, plus our millennium oaks. So they might own the land, but they don't own our air. We'll hear from the university, obviously. I'm here with you now in Rybank Fields. I wanted to see the place. Could we just explore a little bit more so I can yes. get a sense Please of the do, space? Yes. What we're going to do is we're going to walk northwards um, over towards the Trafford boundary, which is the line of trees in the distance. And in so doing, we're walking in the steps of the Anglo-Saxons because we're about to cross the historic Nico Ditch, which separates the two fields. 
this is this is the Nico ditch. This it's very Nico muddy. Yeah. <laughs> and every time I walk through here, I get a sense of history. I, I mean, there's a lot of positive things you're seeing about the place, and the more I'm in it, the more I'm enjoying the experience of it. Uh, yeah. First glimpse, I have to say, I thought it was pretty dire looking, but as I've come in. I can see the lie of the land and the vegetation that you have and how glorious it's going to look through the different seasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not yours. It belongs to the university and they want to sell it and houses be built on it. So that's the bottom line. Thing is, though, we have been custodians of this land for over 23 years. We have worked on the land. We've engaged with the land. You know, somebody actually maintained the path through the Aspen Grove. We've all maintained that path. You know, um, somebody's planted Millennium Oak trees. Somebody's planted a, the start of a community orchard. And people stop and talk to each other here. Why is the adjacent Longford Park not for the community then? Why? It's an open space. It's You can't interact with it in the same way. It's quite sterile. There's flower beds, but they're planted like regiment. You know, there's just, it's, it's just not the same. And it, it just ha- doesn't have that diversity and variety of plants, shrubs, wildlife. I mean, I think we all in the campaign, not just Julie and I, but we all probably just go and have a little cry sometimes because it's really emotional for us to think that we are at risk of losing these trees, the stories, the history. Um, it's really heartbreaking, but we don't dwell on that too much because, you know, I say to Julie, we, I can't even accept that thought and we will manifest this and we will win and we're not going to give up. We won't give up. We'll be changed the trees. <laughs> we're we not going away. We will. <laughs> We've been here too long to go away. <laughs> Four or five metres wide, a couple of metres deep, somewhere oh, along this alignment. All right then, okay. In uh, our visit here, we have heard it mentioned there's uh, something called Nico Ditch. So, as the head of archaeology at the University of Salford, Dr. Michael Neville, you are probably the best man to ask about what, what that is, where it is, explain it. Nico Ditch is one of these long lived boundaries that you get in along the Welsh English border and in the Pennines and, and Northern England. We know that the, this ditch, which which you can sort of see in front of us here, so there's a broad swathe of landscape here. So they've they've cut back the nettles and so and, and the brambles and you can just see a sort of depression in there which which is a 19th 20th century drainage uh, alignment, but that's a recut. That's the latest recut of this ditch that we know is here in about 1200 AD, and almost certainly is a good deal older than that. So, this site here is first mentioned in land deeds around about 1200. They call it the Great Ditch or Mickle Ditch. Nico Ditch is a corruption oh, of that. Oh, I see. And what was its purpose? Oh gosh, how long have you got? <laughs> this is one of the issues. There's there's three thoughts: land boundary drainage ditch or a defence against the Vikings. There's this tradition that it was dug in a day and a night against the Vikings in the middle of the 9th century. This this, this is a boundary ditch that we've tracked for over 8 kilometres. Across this landscape? Across this landscape. We we, we go eastwards from here. We're we're in Longford, which is on the Trafford-Manchester city boundary. It goes across the middle of the city of Manchester, but through Platfields, on into Thameside, Denton, Aldenshaw. 
which is where it finishes up at a piece of former mossland, Ashton Moss. But looking at it, it's not in great <coughs> repair. I couldn't have identified it as a, wow, as a 1200s ditch. <laughs> no, well, it may, well, it may be actually even earlier than that. It could be an early medieval boundary ditch. Think of Offa's Dyke or Watts Dyke. Does it then need to be protected in terms of the potential development of this site? Yes, it does. Now, I know that the owner of the land and the developer have both recognised that. The Greater Manchester Archaeological Advisory Service, who provide the planning advice for Greater Manchester, have highlighted this as an important monument that it needs protecting and any works around it will, will need to respect that monument. I have a chance now to have a chat with Michael Taylor, who is with Manchester Metropolitan University. So can I just ask you a few sort of very bare questions? Why do you want to sell the land? Well, the university is a a good citizen in Manchester. The City Council have approached the university and said that this suburban site has the opportunity to be able to address Manchester's very acute needs for housing and as a university we've consolidated a number of sites not just this one but over a longer period of time so that we're much more of a city centre university. But to do that you would have to sell Rybank fields? No no we we wouldn't we don't have to sell it in order to do those things but But any proceeds that we'd make from selling this unused asset that the university's got would be you know, for the betterment of the rest of our campus. So it's an unused asset for the university, but what seems yeah. to be coming across that it's a very used asset for the local community. That, that's come across quite strongly. Yeah. So what, what stage is the process at at the moment? We published a development framework with Manchester City Council. That's um, now a material consideration. And as part of that, we've done a number of ground investigation works to work out whether the, the land is suitable. We've employed archaeologists, tree specialists, wildlife specialists, ecologists and of course people who are interested in property development opportunities and assessing the land like that. People who incidentally are usually used to examining the land that would be for a chemical works or a factory. People who would call themselves brownfield land specialists. Now we are not maintaining that this is a brownfield site. No, because it has been designated, it's been identified as a greenfield site, it's not brownfield. We've never contested that. I've heard the argument that we should, um, to use someone else's phrase, hand it back to the City Council. What I'd say in response to that is, if we handed it back to the City Council, I don't think that they would necessarily go through the same process that we've gone through to put forward a development framework that builds into that a requirement to address multiple housing needs, which is important, but also really, I think, to the listeners of your programme who'd be interested, is preserve the natural environments that, that are here that, that should be enhanced. You know, the badger sets over as, as, as we're speaking. I know it's radio, so people can't see, but there's badger sets, there's bat nests, there's, there's all sorts of other wildlife, and it should enhance the, the local community of Chalton and Stratford, which it sits alongside, and enhances the existence of the Nico Ditch, an archaeological um, um, presence in, in the middle of it, which I know you've, you've spoken about. And the reason why we've done such an extensive 
amount of survey work is exactly to understand what is here in order that we can bring this into greater use yes for housing but also that in itself will make the housing much more attractive and part of this suburban environment which is the community then lose what this place is to them which is a place for socialization for exercise relaxing de-stressing enjoying nature listening to the birds they would lose that it is a, a you know a well-used dog walking site but let's not also forget that it's next to the largest park in Trafford Longford Park over to, to my left as I'm speaking is the largest park in Trafford and we've got the opportunity with any proceeds that could be accrued from developing this land with a private developer to actually enhance the way in which this whole local area merges in into in a much in a much neater way with Longford Park now every planning application in every part of this country is contested by somebody some somebody doesn't want extra traffic they don't want extra houses in their backyard they they're concerned about the value of the house I totally respect that I totally here, do. Here, the strength seems to be they're concerned about losing uh, a green lung in this part of the city, and, and again, this wildlife a green lung next countryside. to the largest park in Trafford. Well, all the more reason why you need it then, and an opportunity, <laughs> and an opportunity to to manage the trees better, um, to to manage the landscape better, and actually the opportunity potentially to plant even more trees. We're not, we're not planning to concrete over all of this and chop every tree down. Far from it. Well, what will you do with the trees? Because I'm seeing beautiful oaks, the ones that are, you know, planted in the millennium. That amazing aspen tree collection yeah. down at the far end. Yeah, yeah, tree, trees are... I've used this phrase a couple of times, a material consideration now. Any planning application, any developer has to take the existence of the trees on all parts of this site into consideration and use them. And, and, and if they're designated to be protected, then they'll have to be built around. Nobody's, nobody wants to chop down something that planning law will say you must protect those trees. But, you know, it's a city. You know, everybody who's bought a house in this area, everybody who, who lives here, I know they appreciate the parkland environment that they've got, but it, it, it's also, it's Manchester. It's a, it's a growing city and there's an enormous demand for, for housing and development. Of course there is. We see this story happening everywhere. Yeah. But when you do have a place like this, which is quite unique in that this piece of wild landscape has managed to survive in the development of Manchester, does that not make it all the more special it makes it all the more important to enhance what's here and that any development should be sensitive to that i completely agree with you in talking to the campaigners you can very much feel their passion and their connectedness to this wild space in very nearly the heart of manchester but i'm with dr rebecca taylor now of the university of manchester and rebecca you've been involved in researching the idea of uh, the importance, but particularly the value of open spaces like this. Tell me a little bit about about that. To help me understand that better. Mm. I was given an opportunity to be a researcher on the Gaia project, which is it's quite convoluted, but it's um, the green infrastructure and health and well-being influences on an ageing population. So we, um, as quite a big research group um, across many different disciplines, came together and over the course of three years of the last year, I've been more directly involved, but um, 
they've been researching non-monetary values of green space and what the non-monetary value is of and to people of green and blue space. Green being this, what's blue? Yes, so canals, rivers, yeah. Um, And there are 10 um, dimensions to well-being, but what some of those 10 dimensions of well-being are a social connection, a connectedness to nature, an ability to get out and be physical in your environment. And, um, and those three things, to be quite frank, were the three that really rose to the surface out of the research we were doing. And what people turned around and said was that, um, you know, I, I mean, I could give you a couple of examples where one participant um, used benches quite literally as benchmarks to recovery and recuperation after a major operation in hospital mm-hmm. and if these spaces can provide healing for people un- who have undergone major surgeries or whatever then they are also providing so much more for so many other people but it does go undiscovered perhaps it's quite a subtle way of recognising the value of the green space I understand this idea of the benefit of a connectedness with nature. I understand that. You know, I've been involved in that for years. I just get it. What you have now is a professional document brought together by a broad spectrum of people um, to prove it and to be able to hand to, for example, campaign groups or to developers. That is what you have now. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. You can't ignore this. Well, and another thing they can't ignore is this key question that, that all of them are asking right now which is what is their civic duty so any developer or organization within a city center particularly has that duty of care you know at the moment what we're suffering with some of the development plans and the frameworks are they're almost appeasing and they're kind of saying yeah we'll put we'll put 10 trees around our building of course we'll plant 10 trees of course we'll provide some green space but what the definition of green space is is pretty you know uh, loose especially for developments and developers so so again we need these reports to really start to say it's the people who are telling you what this green space is that we need to be listening to and and it might not be I mean trees are really important but it might be that the local community aren't necessarily asking for a park and trees they're actually asking for growing space they're actually asking for wild space they're actually asking for places you can go to to listen and spend time with birds and nature and you know um and provide um places for biodiversity and perhaps urban agriculture (laughs) just as we're standing here Rebecca look high in the sky that vast chevron of birds in flight oh it's beautiful isn't Isn't it it? where are they heading where do they want and you see it's because you've got this gale of that sky to see it yeah you haven't got something built in front of you (laughs) or gets in their way yeah oh that's really lovely Which path shall we yep, follow? There's lots one, of them. <laughs> oh, I love it. You just walk into it. Even the bare stems of the aspen, they lean in towards us. And it's almost like walking through a natural triangle. It's a tunnel, isn't yes. it? It's a tunnel. And in the summer, when the leaves are out, because aspens, the leaves blow around in the wind, and it's like, it's like walking through a thunderstorm because you can hear all this susurating, is that the word, um, above you. And it sounds like rain, but of course it's bone dry. And then we come back out into the open again. 
You can see the tunnel I've walked through. <laughs> it's lovely. I've just joined up with Steve Silver again in the far corner of the park. and This is a particular favourite place of yours, Steve? This, this is my favourite um, plantation or grove of, of, of oak trees. Um, this area used to be completely waterlogged. So I thought, well, if I plant some trees here, it will suck up some of the water. And also, because it was at the end of two roads that had nothing at the end of them, it was extremely windy. It's like a thought, wind tunnel it almost. Is, it is mm. a wind tunnel. So I thought, well, if I plant them in a, in a circle, they'll protect one another from the wind. <laughs> really lovely. And actually, at this corner, we can get a glimpse into what is the municipal park. Park, And, you know, well-kept lawn grass out there. And again, lots of trees, but you can see the contrast between this wilder space and that more cultivated... The the, the vegetation here comes up to waist height, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a lovely sort of environment for animals. I mean, we used to get hedgehogs and things, but um, fewer now. Um, So you'd really miss this place if it wasn't here? I would, yeah. (laughs) I told my daughter when when she was very young, um, I said, well, it's your job if these trees are still here when I'm gone. Try and get this name Silverswood. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) nice. (laughs) So so that would be my legacy. (laughs) 